Welcome to With You Every Step, the solo travel podcast that explores, explains and hopefully inspires you to travel the world by yourself. I'm your host, Michelle Lee. Welcome to With You Every Step. Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world. Due to this, it draws an estimated 35,000 people every year to Mount Everest base camp. And between 700 to 1,000 people attempt to summit Mount Everest every year. Since my hike in Peru, where I unexpectedly summited a 5,000-metre mountain without knowing I was going to, I have been fascinated with mountaineers. This week, we celebrate International Women's Day. In honour of this, I have invited an inspirational woman to join us today. Ali Pepper has scaled to the summit of three 8,000-metre-high mountains, including Everest and Cho Oyu Summit, without the use of supplementary oxygen. And there's only a very small amount of women in the world that have done this. Welcome, Ali. Hi, Michelle. I'm so happy to have you on today and pick your brains. I am very excited to hear all about everything that you have done. Okay, <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> okay, so where did your love of wanting to climb mountains start? So I didn't actually begin climbing, as in any type of climbing, until 1999. Okay. I was 24, I think, and I basically just had been traveling around the world. Since I left high school, I hadn't had like a career path. I didn't go to uni, that kind of thing. I'd just been traveling and having casual jobs. So I decided that I would do a course to try to find my way in life and a career path or some direction I suppose oh okay so, so you're feeling quite lost at that point I was feeling very lost I had gone to India on a spiritual journey for six months which took me to Nepal in fact mm-hmm. for a month uh trekking and I'd come home uh just a, a bit lost because I didn't feel I found myself on my journey and my travels so yeah I went to the local tape and I looked at all of the brochures on the wall and I was a bit of a hippie, well, a lot of a hippie, and I read a brochure wrong and to me it said outdoor recreation. Recreation, okay. Well, I read it wrong because it was outdoor recreation. <laughs> <laughs> However, I was like, it's an omen, you know, I need to do this. I love the outdoors and I want to recreate myself. So I first joins up this course in essentially uh, rock climbing, canyoning, bushwalking, like guiding, okay, okay, to become a guide. That actually sparked my passion, I suppose, for the outdoors, guiding and climbing. So that's when I first like learnt that rock climbing existed. Even though I grew up in the Blue Mountains, which is the largest climbing area in Australia, I didn't really know about rock climbing. So I'd been in the middle of it my whole life and had no idea what was out there. 
I happened on that course to have an instructor who was a mountaineering guide and he noticed how well I did with all the technical uh, climbing and picked up the roping skills really quickly and he offered that I could go on a mountaineering course in New Zealand. Okay. And so, of course, I jumped at the opportunity. Yeah, so I went to New Zealand and I suppose that's where I discovered my passion for mountain climbing. Wow, I had this image of you as a toddler, like just climbing all over anything you could and your parents trying to like grab you constantly. <laughs> we had like a, you know, a backyard full of trees and I did constantly climb trees. Yeah, I have this image of you just climbing everything. So you never had a fear of heights? I still have a fear. Like I always have had a fear. I think everyone has a fear of heights to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Whenever I first started abseiling or climbing or whatever, like the fear of heights was probably more real. But the more I did it, the more used to heights I got, I suppose, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, because I have seen some footage of you where you are walking over ladders and there is like a massive drop underneath you and I think oh, makes me just not be able to breathe just watching that. Yeah, the, the ladders that's in the ice fall of Everest, which I've done quite a few times because I've been, I've been through the ice fall on a number of like seasons. So I've gone to climb another mountain that's next to Everest. It shares the same route up Everest until quite high. So I've spent three seasons going up and down through the ice fall. What's an ice fall? From Everest Base Camp. You climb up through what's called the Kumbu Icefall and you get onto the Western Coombe, which is a valley in between three peaks. So on the left is Everest, in front is Lhotse, which is another 8,000-metre mountain, uh-huh. and on the right is a mountain called Nupsi, so it's just under 8,000 metres. In What happens is all of the snow from those three mountains fill this valley, essentially, and that snow hardens and becomes ice. And the valley is fairly flat but slightly sort of tilting down. So that ice very slowly moves down the valley and it gets to a very sharp kind of cliff of an 800-metre drop, which is steep. So as that ice, like, tumbles down the slope, it breaks apart into big chunks of ice. They're called or cliffs of ice. They're called seracs. And the spaces in between them are called crevasses. So that's the drop that you're looking at on the video that I walk across on a ladder. Okay. Yeah, it's intense just watching it. Now, I've got heaps of questions to ask you about everything, but I want to go back to the start where your very first time where you decided. So you went to New Zealand. Yeah, that was at the end of 1999. So, yeah, I did my first mountaineering course. Straight after that course, uh, what I did was one of the the guys on the course, a young bloke, we decided to head off on our own. Like it would, would have been a few days later. Where we did the course was in the Mount Cook region, so up on the Tasman Glacier there. We hiked out and then we headed down to a place called Wanaka, which you may have heard of. 
and we we packed our things and we went in to climb Mount Aspiring. So it's a different region. It's like the tallest mountain in, in that area. It's like a pyramid. It's really cool because okay. it stands out above all the other mountains kind of thing. Yeah, and how high is that mountain? It's a good question. Okay. <laughs> 3,000 something. Okay, <laughs> yeah, so it's still pretty high. <laughs> the highest mountain in New Zealand is uh, Mount Cook. That's 3,800, but I lost a chunk off the top of it, and okay. it's less than that now. But anyhow, so 3,000 something. I'm, I'm going to guess around 3,300. Okay. But it's te- super technical, snow and ice and rock kind of thing. And, yeah, so we just went in to climb the the mountain on our own and we had to figure out our way through all the crevasses climbing over rock with our crampons on what is that that you just said crampons yeah what's a crampon it sounds like another word but yes what is a crampon (laughs) i know exactly what you were thinking (laughs) a crampon you put them on your boots oh they're those spiky things exactly Okay. And that's what helps you climb ice and hard snow. Oh, okay. So that would have been really helpful for me in Peru, I'm guessing. Yeah, probably. If you're on snow and you're at any angle, then you need them. Yeah, well, we were not prepared at all because we didn't know that's what we were doing and we didn't expect to be in a snow hail thunderstorm so I just had normal little hiking boots on that weren't even waterproof so yeah if, if you're hiking on a track like I use these in Nepal what you can what's called like a trekking crampon which just slips over the top of your hiking boot and that's got little spikes on the bottom of it I use them as well when you don't have like a rigid mountaineering boot uh-huh. so they're quite handy for trekking yeah okay hmm What's the difference between like trekking, hiking and climbing? Trekking and hiking are the same thing because just depends what country you live in, what you call it. Because, for example, in New Zealand they say tramping and in Australia we say bushwalking. And then if we're talking about other areas, we say trekking, but it's the same thing. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's good to know. Yeah. Typically, and that's a good point. Like, typically, you would use your hiking shoes to trek. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. Sneakers to bushwalk. However, climbing, the line between trekking and climbing often uh, doesn't get understood because people refer to, to certain peaks as trekking peaks. I don't know if you've heard that before. Mm, yeah. I guess the person who doesn't know too much about climbing would assume a trekking peak is just a peak that you can walk up in a pair of sneakers or hiking boots. Uh-huh. However, trekking peaks often uh, get called trekking peaks when they're up to 7,000 metres. <gasps> <laughs> okay, no, I would not be wearing runners or sneakers up that high. It's not the appropriate footwear because of the cold. And like we already talked about, there would be typically snow and ice higher up, of course, because there's a permanent glacier. I guess like it's a hard one because you can say trekking at altitude, but if it involves putting on crampons and using ice axes and 
of that kind of thing, it probably turns more into a climb. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does make sense. So trekking is something I, I kind of would think that a trek is like a day trip and climbing is like something that you're going and you're going for a long time. Yeah. Well, you can certainly do like a multi-day trek like in Nepal where you trek over high passes which have glaciers on them. So that would still be trekking because the glacier is fairly flat that you that you cross, but you would put your little your trekking crampons on your shoes. Okay. So, and often we have used an ice axe for crossing passes like that. Climbing, I guess, climbing skills can involve using ropes as well. It's a, it's a difficult like, thing to say what's a climb and what's a trek sometimes because the lines get crossed a little, if that makes sense. Cause yeah. Had- but if someone calls you a trekker, do you kind of get a bit offended? <laughs> I mean, like, no, I'm a climber. Well, <laughs> well the mountains I climb are a little bit more than trekking, let's just say. But climbing itself has got so many facets. So there's ice climbing, rock climbing, mixed climbing, and within each genre of climbing, there's various levels and grades as well. So it gets quite complicated. Yeah, okay. All right. So you don't – yeah, all right. (laughs) I was going to say, I I think it would be offensive if someone called you a trekker when you're like, "Uh, I've climbed Mount Everest. Thank you very much. (laughs) I actually don't get offended (laughs) because I don't don't know. I feel like I've done enough of it that I would just laugh. Yeah. And, and, you know, in terms of, like, climbing, like, there's people out there that do way, way harder – climbing routes than I do on certain mountains that I go to climb for example because there's always the easiest way to the top and there's the hardest way and there's middle ways you know so people do pioneer extremely difficult hard uh, vertical to overhanging lines up up mountains okay my question to that is why why do they do it? Yeah, like why take the hardest way if there's an easier way to get the same point? If it's life-threatening, which a lot of them can be. Yeah, a, I mean, I suppose at the end of the day, like in any sport, you have the elite uh, climbers that are out there on the cutting edge, you know, trying to trying to take the sport to the next level in any sport. Yeah, but the risk of death in this sport is extremely high. Risk of death in that genre, so in the climbing new route, technical technical routes on 8,000-metre mountains without oxygen, for example, is very high. Yeah. I lost my climbing partner because he was pushing the limit. Uh, Yuli Steff, who is quite a famous mountaineer who was – definitely pushing the limits of what's able to be done solo at height and technical. He also passed away. Not well, didn't pass away, I should say. He, he fell to his death. Mm. Uh, Nutsi, the mountain that I just talked about, which is next to Everest and Watsi, while I was there in 2017 also. Oh, it's very sad. Were you there when your friend passed away? Were you on that climb with him? No, so basically we climbed together on uh, Lotzi, which is the mountain next to Everest, tried to climb that 
it was the third time, in fact, in 2017, that I went to climb Watsi and we were we were climbing just together. Uh, he's an Argentinian guide who I've known for quite a while because he used to live in Argentina. And he is a very accomplished climber. We were climbing together on Lotsi uh, to to climb without oxygen. So we'd become pretty – I mean, we were good friends for a long time anyhow. Yeah. But we'd become, obviously, really good friends because we'd spent about six weeks climbing together in Nepal. However, I got quite sick on that trip, so we didn't we didn't make the summit. And then after I came home, he went to a mountain which – uh, is in Pakistan called Nanga Parbat. And that mountain is, again, eight, over 8,000 metres, but it's very technical, mm-hmm. one of the more technical of the 8,000-metre pit. There's no sort of easy climb up it. And him and his Spanish climbing partner picked one of the hardest routes to do, which had only ever been climbed once before, which is called the Mazino Ridge. It's basically the longest ridge in the Himalaya at that height, like 13 kilometres. That's where they died in an avalanche on it. Yeah, it's obviously hard Mm. to have someone, you know, a climbing partner pass away. I mean, it's not the first time. From my research that I did, pretty much every mountaineer that I looked up had all had some kind of story very similar to that. And it's horrific. And I just think... I don't know how I would cope if that was my field. I don't know if I would be able to keep going on, especially if it's a situation where you're there and it happens and you've witnessed everything. I can't imagine the trauma that goes into somebody from that experience. Like I have watched people pass away on the mountain from various things. It's hard to explain, I suppose, like... I have, a, I have a similar maybe mentality to a lot of my friends that are paramedics. Like you can, you can distance yourself from it. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense, I guess, when you think about someone that's a doctor or a paramedic. Yeah, like a doctor yeah. or a paramedic, they deal with that like every day on the job, right? Yeah. Obviously, sometimes it's going to be more tra- traumatizing than other times if it's someone very close to you. And that would be the same for a paramedic if they came to a car crash and it was their friend, for example. Yeah. At the end of the day, that is why I do things the way I do and try to try my best to mitigate risk. And, and I have, you know, lines that I know not to cross, if that makes sense, personally. Yeah, okay. Can you explain the 8,000ers for people that don't understand what that means? Because I've done a lot of research. I know what an 8,000er is and I know how amazing it is to climb. I just kind of fell into climbing up high just from my background living in South America and just climbing as much as I could and guiding at altitude. It, it just was like the next thing, if that make, makes sense. Like I was like, oh, I'd never really had a fascination with the Himalaya or was obsessed about it or had read what's the books or anything like that. But I just sort of was like, well, 
I've been climbing now in the Cordillera Blanca on on mountains of 6,000 metres and I'd done a couple of sort of climbs where I felt really comfortable to not have a rope. So either on my own or with a partner but without the rope on not like super technical terrain but moderate technical terrain. And when I became like confident in that type of climbing, I just thought, well, the next thing for me is to climb higher. And that's why I first went to climb an 8,000-metre mountain. What was the first one you did? So, I mean, in terms of 8,000-metre mountains, like, I could list all of them for you. I've never been to Pakistan. Yeah, I'm just trying to get back to the question. I'm not sure exactly what else, yeah, what else I can sort of give you about the 8,000 metre mountain round. All I can say is like my sort of experience with it. Yeah. So the first mountain I went to climb was in Tibet. Okay. And back in the day, which is 2007 now, it was fairly cheap to climb in uh, China or Tibet. So that's why I picked that one. Ah, (laughs) okay. That was a pretty simple reason. I was thinking there was probably a lot of background to that. <laughs> no other reason except for that. Because I was working as a as a guide, which in Australia is one of the lowest paid, I think the second lowest paid industry or something like that, believe it or not. Even though you have all this responsibility and things to keep people alive it's not paid very well so I didn't have a lot of money at the time and I just saved my pennies I was also working in in South America I was kind of like living and and working in South America and Australia just uh, as a as a guide and I was saving my pennies for it and so that's why I chose to climb in China because it was cheaper than Nepal okay and when you're talking about how much it costs is it quite expensive to do these climbs yes and I don't want to think about how much money I've spent on them to date because it would be embarrassing well you know if it's something you love it's not I haven't spent any money really on anything else in my since I started to climb essentially so I don't I never bought a house so is it the climbing equipment that's expensive or actually going and doing the actual climb? You have to pay a certain amount to do it. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's permit fees depending where uh, you go. So I can't speak for Pakistan because I haven't been to Pakistan yet. But in Nepal and uh, China, the, the permit fees are fairly high. Like, for example, Everest, just to have the piece of paper to be there costs 10000 US dollars. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Get nothing with it. They say you do. Um, apparently have a liaison officer that you're paying $3,000 to have at the base camp and kit out and pay for their food and clothing, et cetera. But I've never, ever met my liaison officer. So $10,000 to get to the summit, right? That's not for base camp. No, it's just a piece of paper. It's not. It's nothing. <laughs> it's no, not but if, if someone's going to base camp, they don't need to pay that? Or is that for everybody? Yeah, no, going to base, no, trekking to base camps is essentially a 1,000 rupees. That's just, but we have to pay that anyhow, like when we go. On top of your $10,000 permit. 
Yeah, but that's not hardly anything. Like the trekking into the national park, there's an entry fee. Mm-hmm. Hardly, it's like thirty dollars or something like that. But the peak fees, so the peak fees typically for any other eight thousand meter mountain, they're around two two thousand US dollars. Wow. Okay, so Everest is right up there. Yeah, so the, the the things that are expensive, like for me it's cheaper because I don't go with a guided company, uh-huh. climb for myself kind of thing. But if if you're going with a guided company, it would be very, very expensive. But the, the expensive costs would be the, the base camps. So hiring or being part of a base camp where you have a tent, you can leave your stuff in while you're on the mountain, when you come down, you have someone there who, who's cooking for you. And it's pretty hard to not have that. Yeah. Not just for the climbing part, but it's kind of part of the thing in the fall or China. Like you kind of have to have like employ people. It'd be very difficult to not have that base camp set up basically. And is that expensive? Yeah, that's the most expensive part. Exactly. Because they have to get all of these tents and employees and food and et cetera into the middle of nowhere essentially. So say one time going to Everest to try and summit, would you say maybe about 20,000 US dollars would be summit up? Mm, no. More than that? <laughs> I, like personally, I can tell you how much it costs me. Yeah. I am fascinated. I never thought it would be that expensive. Well, so so for me, it was cheap, okay? And it cost me around 40000 Australian. But that is cheap because I just climbed with another Sherpa who's from Nepal and we didn't have a team and we just stayed in someone else's base camp. Now, if you were a, you were like a client on an expedition that you were being guided, you could pay up to 120,000 US. Oh my golly gosh. People remortgage their homes to do it, let's just say. And then there's a chance that you can die. Well, there's probably like Everest has now got the least the least risk. Okay. Because it's so commercially guided and, yeah, they fix the ropes. There's a lot of in- infrastructure now. Okay. Are you walking on a path now? Through the snow. In some sections. Yes, I've, I looked at photos and it looks like people are walking on paths. In the snow? Well, if, it's, if there's lots of people going across, like a, across the Western Coombe, which is fairly flat, and it's the snow, then it'll look like a path until it snows and then there's no path and then someone makes it again. Does that make sense? Okay, yep. It would be like cross-country skiing where you someone goes in front through the snow and they make a track and then the more people that go on their skis, then the, the bigger the track gets. Okay, yep, that makes sense. However, when you get to the lossy face, which is, you know, like 45, 50 degrees in slope then it's difficult to make a track on that so the first time you decided to say do Everest what was going through your head did you just make a decision one day and just go I'm gonna do this 
Oh, yeah, kind of. So what happened was in 2007, when I first went to Choyu, I just went with a very small team with a friend of mine from the Blue Mountains who was an adventure guide. And we essentially just had one uh, Nepalese guy at the base camp with one tent that he lived in and cooked us food. That was our base camp. (laughs) When we had like a tent each. Anyhow, my climbing partner during that trip, I'd spent a lot of time climbing at altitude in South America, like maybe seven months a year. Okay. So I had quite a lot of experience of how my body would go and and how to to climb and acclimatize. And I suppose like my climbing partner didn't have quite as much experience, but anyhow, he ended up getting like frost nip on his toes. So he couldn't go for the summit attempt. And I essentially decided to go on my own. So I left base camp for eight days and headed up the mountain and went to summit by myself. So you had no one with you? No. So there were other people at the camps, but essentially I was on my own. On summit day, I was completely on my own. Uh, There was no one else that went up that day to the summit. So that was quite difficult because there was some new, like a fair amount of new snow. So I had to make uh, steps through it, which is hard if no one else can help. And yeah, so I essentially summited by myself. That is amazing. Yes, and I didn't use oxygen because I never even thought to, to be honest. Like, I, I just didn't even have it as an option. We didn't even have any oxygen as a backup because I hadn't really thought that oxygen was even an option because it was just over like 8,200 metres. And I thought, well, that's not that high. Oh, my gosh. I was at 5,000 <laughs> metres and I could barely breathe. Well, I do, I do what I do remember, like, because high altitude mountaineering apparently kills your um, memory brain cells. I don't know what it's from, but anyhow, what I do remember (laughs) was when I was hiking towards the summit, it's like a mile long plateau and it's fairly flat and it's fairly difficult to see like how far from the summit you are essentially you know you're at the summit because you finally get to this point where you can see Mount Everest because you're climbing on the opposite side of the mountain to Mount Everest. So you never see Everest at all until you're on the summit, basically. The the proof that you've made the summit is the photo of Mount Everest from the top. And I just remember just thinking, like, I'm never going to get there. I was hiking along this, like, rolling hill of a – this was hiking (laughs) because it was fairly flat. Okay. Um, I was hiking along with my crampons on (laughs) to the summit and I I had to breathe so fast as if I was hyperventilating to actually not pass out. (sighs) That's what I do remember because if I started to breathe too slowly – I actually was starting to fall asleep and black out. Oh, my gosh. So that that means that was so little oxygen going through your body at that point. Yes. And just to walk, like the action of actually doing any form of exercise, just it took it, if that makes sense. Uh So you had to breathe a lot. 
harder just to be able to to stay conscious. And if you were by yourself, did you ever have that fear that I'm by myself right now? If something happens to me, that's it? I didn't really know. It was weird. I think like at the time I was a bit sort of naive. And since then I've added a lot of things into my uh, climbing, such as a sat phone and weather reports and stuff like that. But at the time I just, I don't know, I just had this faith that I would be okay. I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to explain. Mm. Yeah, it's the difficult thing to explain. I, I felt very comfortable. I was a little get. I was a little bit scared that I was by myself. I also didn't feel so scared that I would turn around. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does make sense. And I think you had so much determination that you were just going to make this happen. It wasn't just determination. Like I felt confident. Like I didn't feel like I was out of my comfort zone. Well, I think if you're at the point where you think you're going to pass out and you're just like, nope, not going to do it, not going to do it, keep going, keep going. <laughs> I never, yeah, it's hard to explain. Like, I just, I don't know, like, it was uncomfortable, but in terms of, I guess, like, the experience I've had up until then, I was confident in my, my skills, but I was also fairly lucky in terms of the weather. Like if the weather had changed while I was up on that plateau, it would have been a different story. I was just lucky I didn't have any clouds come in. I could find my way back because I didn't have a GPS or anything at the time to retrace my steps. And plenty of climbers have died on that plateau, unable to find their way back to the camp. My heart is racing right now just listening to your stories. <laughs> No, I mean, like I said, I was lucky and then I have got a sat phone and a GPS and a few other bits and pieces to negate a few of the risks that I was just, I just happened to get away with on that first trip. So you get to the summit and the view? Yeah, the view was amazing. I was like, there's Everest, yay. And basically I, you know, I took my selfie back in the day. It wasn't, it was kind of like selfies weren't a thing back then, but I had to take a selfie to prove that that was me and that was Everest in the background just to get my summit certificate, I suppose. Is there a big sign up the top to tell you that you're at the summit? No, the Sherpa do is place... Uh, prayer flags in a huge pile. Oh, is that what those flags are? Yeah, they feel like Everest has grown by a metre because there's so many of them on top. Well, not just prayer flags on top of Everest. There's lots of things on top of Everest, but that's the like the colourful things that you see. So that's how you know you're at the summit? Yes. Well, I, like I said, on show you, there's no more up. <laughs> well, the other thing is there's no more up. Like you can't actually take a step higher. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's the obvious one. But that's obvious when the, the sun's out. It's not obvious when when the sun isn't out because sometimes you might be on a high spot on a ridge and you don't realise you've still got to go another 200 metres. So you left that base camp by yourself to go up to the summit. How long did it take you to get up there? So it took me, I think it was six days up and two days down. And where do you stay overnight? In tents. So I was just lucky because one of my friends that guides on a mountain in South America, Aconcagua, which I've just guided now, like came back a week ago, he was also there guiding. He had some tents higher up on the mountain. So when I left, 
base camp, I basically asked him, could I sleep in the, the higher camp tent that he had already? And that helped me because it would have been quite difficult for me to carry, you know, without having a climbing partner, I have to carry all of the stuff on my own, like the tent, the stove, the food, you know what I mean? That's what I'm thinking. I was thinking, how are you doing this? Yeah, so I was able to use his tent up there and that's led to my success. (laughs) Yeah, and what success it is. Amazing. It was quite a while ago now, 2007. And so since then, yeah, I've just been chasing the same thing and the same style. And so I kind of realized fairly quickly after that, like I almost got depressed when I came back because I was like on such a high And then came back to, you know, like no money, nowhere to live, no big fanfare, just back to work, guiding, saving my pennies. It blows my mind that you can do something so amazing and then you come back and nobody really knows about it. I can't imagine how it felt for you when you got to that top. You would have felt like the queen of the world and then you just come back to reality and everyone's just like, oh, yeah, how was your trip? I'm like back to guiding teenagers in the bush again and <laughs> it's interesting. But I sort of like, I think the thing that hit that, that was the hardest for me at the time was like, I felt like, oh my gosh, I've discovered the thing that I'm good at. Uh-huh, you, you found that thing. Found, like it trumped everything I'd done previously and it just felt like, like this is me. And I now want to do all of them, you know, all 14. And I just, and the, but the reality of like, I, I can't, I don't have the money. Like I just cannot do it on my guide's wage. So that was probably the most depressing thing. Just being like a climber, I didn't have any business skills. I didn't know anything really about sponsorship. Like I was very naive. Okay. I just assumed, okay, well, I'll just pick the next cheapest one, which is uh, Shisha Pangma, it's called. So I was planning to do that the year after because I could afford it, except what happened was the Chinese government closed the whole of Tibet to climbers because of some reason. I can't remember what it was. Something to do with the Olympics. and I don't, I don't even know what it was. 2008. Anyway, something happened. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get a permit. So instead, I decided to take a couple of trips to Nepal, guiding myself. Because before I went to Toyo, I trekked around the Kombu. So I went to Everest Base Camp. Then I visited like my friends that were guiding on Everest. And yeah, so I decided, okay, well, I want other people to see this. So I took six friends of mine, work colleagues, over to, to trek the three passes trek and then island peak is that at everest at everest yes and we went by base camp so had you already done that before this i did i did it in 10 days (laughs) when we were acclimatizing for choyu and this time did it in 24 days with clients Okay. then i went again to the base camp again my friends you know I, i guided on when I can cargo with her all there guiding on Everest, I just felt super jealous of them. So at this point you hadn't summited Everest? No, no, no. This okay. was the year after uh, Choyu. And then I came back and I did another mountaineering trip with a client from uh, Aconcagua into Mira Peak. So I spent about oh, 50 days 
in Nepal. And all the while looking at Everest and I sort of came back from that trip and I just, I was insanely jealous of my friends that were working on Everest that I went to see. And I just decided that instead of trying to take on this mammoth task of how the hell was I going to have all this money to climb all 14, maybe if I just saved a longer for Everest and did Everest that, that that would be enough, you know, just to climb the highest one. That was my logic. So, yeah, so I basically saved up my pennies for three years. In that time, I didn't even put crampons on. I did absolutely no mountaineering, no climbing at all on glaciers, no climbing at altitude, no guiding at altitude. I just essentially worked in Australia scribbling away uh, my money I got a loan personal loan as well and I planned to try Everest without oxygen like I didn't know what that meant really okay speaking of International Women's Day the Australian Geographic Society had a a sponsorship well they still do sorry a sponsorship program for women the Nancy Bird Walton sponsorship program was a famous Australian woman who was the first uh, pilot to fly commercial uh, planes here. Ah. So the award was named after her. Anyhow, so I found out about it and I won it. So I won $5,000 towards my trip, which was a great help. Woohoo! Yes, and, and I actually also gained another sponsor, for, for my trip who just read about me because they read that in a newspaper and they had uh, three daughters and they just thought I'd be a good role model for them and, the, and then their family company gave me some money also towards my trip. So all of a sudden I had a sat phone and I had a laptop and all these extra things I never thought I would be able to afford, which was great. So does this mean then that the training had to start? <laughs> yeah, I've been training hardcore for it, but just not on mountains, just here in the Blue Mountains, just doing laps up and down valleys with um, water in my backpack. How much water do you carry in your backpack to train? Well, I, I basically have a pack of up to 25 kilos. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I mean, I was fit for the trip. Yeah, so anyway, so off I went. <laughs> And I had a Sherpa. I, I essentially knew from Choyu, like, I couldn't carry a higher even. So the highest camp on Choyu is 7,500 metres. And I knew that I couldn't carry all these things, you know, gas, stove, tent, to 8,000. Because that's the highest camp on Everest, you know, 8,000 metres. Especially if I was going to try this without oxygen. I didn't even know how, how much of a pack I could carry to that height. So I decided, well, I'm going to need to climb with someone who is strong and I need to expect them <laughs> to carry all this stuff. Yeah. So I essentially need to pay them. I can't just have like a climbing partner, like a mate. If I want to get there, I'm going to have to pay someone to do this job. Yeah. The, the company that I use to organize all the logistics for my trips in Tibet and uh, Nepal found me, a Sherpa called Dawa Tenzing. 
from Tamo in, in the Kumbu region, which is near Namchi, the Sherpa capital. And he's 10 years younger than me, but he'd summited Everest oh, twice before, and that was good enough. <laughs> well, you know the way. And, yeah, so he met me at the uh, Lukla airport, standing there with this big grin on his face when I got off the plane, and I just thought, well, at least he looks like he has a sense of humour, and that's the main thing I look for in a climbing partner, obviously apart from the strength. So we had a great time, got to know each other. We climbed another 6,000-metre mountain first uh, to acclimatise. We didn't have to go through the Kumbu Icefall too many times because it's probably one of the more dangerous parts of Everest. How long do you acclimatise before you start doing any kind of walking at all when you first get there? It takes a long time to acclimatise to climb high. And the most important part of acclimatizing is the beginning. So the start of the acclimatization program, I suppose. When we talk about altitude, high altitude is classified as over 2,500 meters mm-hmm. of elevation. And if we're going to go any, anywhere that's higher than that, for example, we fly into Lukwa and it's two eight, uh, two eight. then we need to start thinking of an acclimatization program. Oh, okay. What is that? <laughs> Essentially, there's a few rules that can help us uh, think about it. So, for example, you know, there's the old move up 300 metres every day, every fourth day have a a rest day or you can move up 400 meters every day and not have the rest day you know what I mean so that doesn't always fit with where the villages are on the hike or where the camps are on the mountain so what we then do is we we adopt this thing called climb high sleep low where when we have to do a big move up we'll we'll have a rest day and then we'll we'll climb up or hike higher during that day, which is what we call an active rest day. <laughs> so that doesn't sound like a rest. I don't normally have rest days, to be honest, if I'm climbing myself. So I go up high and come back. So when we go up high during the day, we come back and we sleep low. Uh, that helps us to acclimatise. And then we do the big move up, you see. Oh, I get you. So you just go up and then come back and then you go up and you stay up. Correct. So when you're looking at trekking, then you need to look at the heights of the villages or wherever you're going to camp, etc. Think about that principle because that's the, the, the baseline rule, if that makes sense. How are you going to work it out? Like, okay, well, we should have, if we have a rest day here, then we're going to feel better when we go over that high pass. Or When I flew into Cusco in Peru, that is, I don't know how high, it's over 3,000, I think, Cusco mm. City is. And I struggled. I didn't expect to struggle as much as I did and feel it straight away. But as soon as I got off the plane, I could feel my breath, the shortness of breath. And my hostel was just up a little hill in Cusco City. It took me literally 10 minutes to get up this little hill because every few steps I had to stop to catch my breath. And I was blown away by how much it had taken my breath away, literally. 
and I couldn't believe it. But then after yeah. a few, after about three days, I was pretty good. But it took it took me at least three days before I could breathe. So that's when the use of Diamox is really good because Diamox helps you to climatize from the beginning. So what you could do, like if you were flying into somewhere that's high, like like that example, is start taking Diamox a few days beforehand and it starts to climatize you prior to getting there. So you would actually feel better when you got there. Is that a medication? It is, yes. I did. I'm pretty sure I did and it still, it still got me. But – I never really go but up high. if you hadn't, you know, you might have got sicker, ah, you see. Oh, yeah, okay. You're just finding it difficult to walk around. But people often get off the plane and they get sick and they actually have to like immediately go down in, in altitude because they're starting to get acute mountain sickness. Yeah, okay. But, and, and it's very common, isn't it? And you just don't know if it's going to hit you or not. It's, it's very common if you have no idea of acclimatisation. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have no sort of plan or, or anything. You know, like, for example, you, you got there. Had you then gone to trek high, then you most probably would have got it. But you just decide to stay and have a rest day. And when, when you sort of first get to altitude, the first few days are, like, the most important and what they say is like when you when you first begin not to overexert yourself. So let's just say right. you got there and then you went for a run. Well, then you have, you're more likely to bring it on. If you get there and you go out and have a big party with your mates and drink a lot of alcohol and then you fall asleep. Yeah, alcohol is actually really bad, isn't it, for altitude? Well, not once you're climatized, but it suppresses your heart rate and your breathing in the night. So you're not getting enough, like your body then can't speed itself up, to, which it naturally does to climatise and then you get sick. So the first few days are kind of like the crucial where people can stuff it up, mm. especially big drinkers. <laughs> yes. and, and the same thing is taking sleeping medication. You know, like people might take sleeping medication because they want to get over jet lag and they're at altitude and it does the same thing as alcohol slows your body down when you're asleep you see okay so anyone planning to go maybe do base camp at everest do not do that <laughs> party at namchi on the way up party at namchi on the way down yes <laughs> so there is a lot of people now wanting to do base camp what are the things that's really important for them to know just to do that hike to get well is it a hike what do you, is it a climb it's a hike it's a hike to base camp. That is one of the things that you said, oh, does it annoy you when people say you're a trekker? What annoys me is when people say climb to Everest's base camp. <laughs> okay. All right. So give me a bit more of an example. I haven't done it, so I need you to tell me about this because I know oh, there's a lot of people oh, doing we've, it. We've done Everest and I'm like, are you sure? And they're like, well, we, we trekked Everest base camp. I'm like, but no, that's not done Everest or climbed Everest sorry it was a bit of a difference yeah okay give it to me tell me what's the differences I mean obviously I know one's a summit and one's base camp but to get to base camp is it still a hard trek it's like it's not it's like a it's like a highway in terms of what the track is like oh because so many people go in and out and yaks trains of yaks bringing 
things in and out of the base camp, food, tables, tents. So yak being the animal? Yak being the animal, yes. Okay, so you're not just being offensive to people like, yeah, you silly yak. (laughs) No, there's horses lower down on the trail, like where yaks can't go because yaks have to live at altitude or they die. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. So, so yeah, there's horses lower down, super dusty. The thing that's hard about it is the altitude, not the track itself. Okay, so there's is there an actual track? On on. Like you can run on the track. The oh, track is, really? Yeah, I mean, compared to the trail runs up here, the track is fairly, fairly good and easy. <laughs> but oh. it's the the altitude and the dry, cold air that gets people. Mm-hmm. And the dust. Yeah, okay. The yak dust. <laughs> the yak dung it- dust. <laughs> So it, it is basically an actual track, though, to get to base camp. It is a definite track. In terms of a track for me, I would call, because I do a lot of off-track walking, it would be what I would call a highway of a track. Oh. So the le- the level of danger on that? On the track itself? Yeah. Is there, is there a the level of danger? danger? Like, are you on cliffs faces or...? Those along the sides of cliffs, but it's wide where it does that, obviously, because yaks walk through. Porters go with huge, big planks of plywood for the lodges, so that so they fit. So the only danger would be if there's a team of yaks coming, you need to get out of the way, or they could push you off the edge. So we always go to the high side of the track as the yaks pass. That's a good top tip. <laughs> And then they go underneath you so they can't push you off the cliff, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's scary. When I was in Peru, we had to walk on a little tiny track, which was literally the size of my foot. So I had to put one foot in front of the other. You couldn't go side by side. And that's when it started pelting down with hail. And so it was icy. And it was the scariest Mm -hmm. thing I've ever had to do. And we're just literally walking on this side. I couldn't see in front of me because it was pelting down. And my fear was through the roof and I just started walking really slow. And that was the scariest thing that I've ever done. So that's the image I have of walking to base camp is that kind of tiny little path that I'm visualizing. Well, that's not the, the image you need to have. Okay. All right. <laughs> you can have that image if you like. It sounds like that image haunts you, It does. Michelle. It, it, it very much haunts me every day. <laughs> Well, just because I've heard people say that Everest base, like getting to Everest Base Camp is really crazy and intense and it's the hardest thing they've ever done, I put that obviously in my, refer that to me of the hardest thing I've ever done. And so that's the visualisation, I guess, that I have come to because of that. I think it's all relative, like depending, like, you know, what hiking experience you have. Do you know what I mean? Like for me, it's super easy mm. track itself. And I've taken clients there that like a few of them have had really big fears of heights and like you said that similar type of thing walking on the track like that they could like they would be terrified and they had they did not have any experience of that at all on that track if that helps you yeah okay I yeah I mean obviously like you've got to go over swing bridges above huge big drops and stuff but yeah that's scary enough just right there 
That would maybe be the the hardest thing, but they're very big, dirty bridges that yacht trains walk across, for example. Oh, okay. I wouldn't be put off by your other image in your head. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, when people have talked about it, I've like, no, from my experience, what I've done now, I would never want to go to base camp. But speaking to you now, maybe I could, maybe I could do it. I definitely think you could. Hmm. Interesting. I don't see why not. It's just tricking. Yeah, okay. And you have lodges, so you can quite comfortably, and in fact, you only really walk like a few hours a day. That's probably the hard part for people because they have a lot of downtime they think oh only walks like five hours to this village I'd rather go further because I want to do more exercise but then they go too high and they get sick Uh so it's all about trying to just enjoy the area go slow yeah people walk too fast they get sick we did like eight hours in the one day it was it was intense and that's okay. Like, it's okay to do a big day once well, you I didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the plan. <laughs> but there's typically not really that many big days. Like, you don't have to do any big days in fact trekking in and out hmm. if you don't want because there's so many villages to stop at. Okay. Basically. Oh, okay. You're making it sound more appealing to me. With people doing base camp, is there a level of training people should be doing to do that, though? Well, it all just it's all relative to what your experience is. Like, if you're a hiker and you you're used to hiking and that's what you do every weekend, then it's not going to be too hard for you. But if you're starting with no baseline hiking fitness, then then you are going to have to train. You know, so it just depends on where you're at. And what kind of training for somebody that's never done any kind of hiking at all and they want to get to base camp, what kind of training do you suggest they do do? Well, guess what? The best training for a hike is what do you think? Uh, I don't know, eating lots of bad food and sitting (laughs) on the couch watching Netflix. I don't know. That's where I'm thinking. (laughs) Well, it's not rocket science. It's hiking. You can just hike around the city with your backpack and just go find hills and stairs. And if you've just got a lunch break and you're in a building, just whack on a backpack and go up and down the stairs instead of take the the elevator. Yeah, okay. That's good advice. And you think they should have 25 kilos of weight in the backpack? Well, no, because no one's going to be carrying 25 kilos for that hike. Oh, to Everest Base Camp, of course. Yeah, exactly. So how how much weight should they have in their backpack to train? Well, it depends how they're planning on doing the hike. Like are you planning on going with a guide and porters where you just carry a day pack or are you planning on carrying your own pack with your sleeping bag and gear in it? It just you need to to have what's going to be realistic the, the thing, like whatever weight you plan on carrying is what you should train with or carry a little bit more so it becomes a little bit easier when you add in the altitude. Yeah. See, that's what I struggled with. I barely had anything in my backpack and I was struggling with the altitude the higher we got and my guide was like, oh, my gosh. And so at one point he took my backpack off me 
and it made a difference. And I couldn't, he's like, what's in your bag? I'm like, my camera. I don't know. I've barely got anything in it. When I got back to the hostel, I realized there was, you know, those massive packs of, no, those massive packs of batteries, like the biggest pack of batteries you can get that, you know, maybe 30 batteries or something that was hidden in the back. So that's what the weight was because they're really heavy. (laughs) Yeah. So it, it did feel a lot heavier than I couldn't make out why it was so heavy and they couldn't either. They're like, this is really heavy. We found out it was the batteries later after we got back. I was like, yeah, that would have been helpful to realize that earlier. I wouldn't have been taking batteries with me. It wasn't the plan. <laughs> oh, geez. Oh, well, you learn your lesson. You're still here. That's I am. the main thing. Yes. It's always good to learn the lesson and survive. We are out of time for this week. Don't worry. Next week is part two. Ellie goes into detail about her climb to Everest and how she summited the highest mountain in the world. Her story is riveting and exciting and sad. So please make sure you tune in for next week. Don't miss it. If you want, watch Everest in the meantime. Thanks for listening to With You Every Step, hosted by Michelle Lee. We do hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, make sure you tell everybody. If you didn't, nobody likes a Debbie Downer. Please subscribe to get up to date with our latest releases and give us a thumbs up on our social media at With You Every Step. We love to hear from you. If you have any questions or inquiries, head to the Contact Us page at our website, michellelee.com. That's also where you'll find all our blogs mentioned in the podcast. We love to hear from you and if we have inspired you to travel. Thanks for listening. Love life and adventure on.